Hello, and welcome back to A Place for Film, the official IU Cinema podcast. My name is David Carter, who is very sick today <laughs> as uh, they are recording this episode. Uh, hey, everybody. Welcome to the special, very short Spielberg Spring Break episode is what I'm calling it. This is in honor of the IU Cinema having an upcoming screening of Close Encounters of the Third Kind on Tuesday, March 29th at 7 p.m., which will be in person and be $4. And as always, limited seating and tickets available, so please buy your tickets in advance. There's no standby line for seating. But besides all that, I wanted to do this episode because, yes, it is an upcoming screening, and we just recently screened uh, West Side Story at the IU Cinema in which I introduced, and people seem to like the introduction so much that I'm going to just drop the audio for the introduction after this very brief look at Steven Spielberg's sci-fi catalog of films, a subsect of his films. I would say that, I would say if, if you were to break his filmography up into types of films that Steven Spielberg likes to make, personally, the ones I enjoy uh, the most are the ones about people who are just very good at their jobs. I enjoy the Tom Hanks movies. I like The Post and Bridge of Spies. I very much enjoy Lincoln. Love his war movies. I would say that's another subsect of, of films you could break his filmography up into. And then obviously the adventure films, Tintin fits into there, the Indiana Jones films. But his sci-fi films, I feel they are very special. I feel like they also put his filmography into more focus as the what I'm going to call post or pre 9-11 sci-fi films, the sci-fi films he started making between 2001 and I guess 2018 with Ready Player One being the last one he's made so far. Um, and even those can be broken up into their own distinct little categories. The first Steven Spielberg sci-fi film I think I ever saw is not E.T., which I think is usually most people's first experience with Steven Spielberg, especially people my age. The first Steven Spielberg sci-fi film I ever got to see was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That was just a film that I think played on TV a ton. I've always been enamored by the idea of UFOs and the idea of how you would communicate with somebody if if you had no basis of communication with them. Uh, meaning like as a child, I was like, how can you speak a language that, you know, an alien race would have a completely different set of rules? And the movie goes out of its way to say that, yes, music is the universal language of <laughs> is the universal language, which I think is beautiful and heartfelt. But that and E.T. and kind of his later films, but that and E.T., along with Poltergeist, which Spielberg famously produced, and some people think that he probably shadow-directed some of, uh, not to take anything away from the great Toby Hooper. I think it's probably, you know, a little bit column A, a little bit column B. I think Toby Hooper did direct large por portions of that film, and I think maybe Steven Spielberg probably nudged his influence onto it. But you have these, like, trilogy of sci-fi films that I kind of are about families in danger in some way. Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you have a father who is becoming obsessed with these extraterrestrials. And, uh, you know, if you haven't seen the film, I won't spoil the ending, but there is a choice made at the end of the film that even Steven Spielberg himself always felt kind of weird about. And then with Poltergeist, you have this family who's in danger because of this external circumstances, and it's kind of testing the family a little bit. But in the end, they all kind of come out together uh, holding hands. But when you're watching E.T., it's so interesting because E.T., the family unit has like fallen apart 
the mother is divorced, the child pretty much has to find solace in this alien who kind of acts as kind of like a boy and his dog <laughs> for the movie, but it's a lot more complicated than that. And I would say all of them are like kind of melancholy. Like it's interesting. Uh, we always think of Steven Spielberg as this, uh, people always criticized him in like the nineties and Ots is like, oh, he pedals in pablum. He's too sentimental. But I think, you know, not to get into much of his like personal history, but I think he probably had a lot of scars uh, from his own childhood that like made their way into his art and he examines it from different angles, both critically and, you know, as kind of a uh, wish fulfillment. And then you see that translate into the next set of sci-fi films, which becomes his like Jurassic Park films, which those are, well, at least the first film is an adaptation of a Michael Crichton novel of the same name, Michael Crichton being, I wouldn't call him a seminal sci-fi writer. Maybe people would disagree with me on that, but definitely, you know, famous for Westworld, another, as amusingly pointed out by a lot of people, another story about a park being overrun by the thing that is also the attraction to the park uh, and what it says about humanity and who are the real monsters and who are the real robots and who are the real dinosaurs? Is man the real dinosaur? I don't know. But yes, this Jurassic Park uh, and Lost World, both these movies about like family units coming together. Obviously, you have uh, Dr. Alan Grant played by Sam Neill and Laura Dern. And like he's reluctant to become a father and he's kind of prickly, you know. And at the end of the film, the family unit kind of comes together with these two kids that he has to take under his wing and protect. And you can see him soften up uh, as it goes along. And then with Lost World, a movie I've probably only seen once and a long time ago. My understanding is that there are adoptive children in there, these family units being a thing. And then we enter the aughts. It's hard to call them post 9-11 movies because they were being filmed before 9-11, but they definitely take on this like dark early Bush era tone of like, ah, yes, America is no longer untouchable and never was to begin with. But you have AI, which is this legendary people always thought co-production it was supposed to be a stanley kubrick movie steven spielberg was a dear friend of stanley kubrick as well as a disciple of stanley kubrick and they would fax back and forth notes on the movie because steven wanted to adapt the film himself after uh Stan it became clear that stanley kubrick wasn't going to be able to and that is kind of steven spielberg's pinocchio story about a robot who just wants to be kind of a real boy you know, he's a robot for a essentially be a friend to the child of a family, but he himself never really getting the love and affection that he himself needs. Please go watch AI. I know that's at the time it was probably one of his most maligned films, but to me, I think it's like kind of shot up as like one of his most underrated films. And then the next year, because this is Spielberg when he's working on that, like a film every other year to a film a year, which he still kind of does from time to time. I think it was Ready Player One. The post came out immediately afterwards, which is insane. Oh, Adventures of Tintin and Lincoln, like back to back. Insane. But you have that story and then you get Minority Report the next year, which isn't so much about family, but it does have that Tom Cruise kind of playing this figure who's trying to protect somebody almost as their own child. I won't say too much about that if you haven't seen Minority Report. To me, one of the best Philip K. Dick adaptations if you are a fan of old school noir. A lot of references to noir. It's kind of in itself a neo-noir, a sci-fi neo-noir. It's got a great hazy washed out look uh, and a bunch of like great little director's cameos. There's a direct, I think it's P.T. 
Anderson has a cameo in it that I've that no one's been able to spot. I would be curious if that's still the case to this very day, but there's a lot of little cameos in that movie. And then we get to a movie that is near and dear to my heart, War of the Worlds, adaptation of H.G. Wells's story of the same name, also starring Tom Cruise. And guys, this is the 9-11 movie. I, this has been remarked upon. There's a video essayist, Lindsay Ellis, who's now pretty much retired, uh, who did a whole video on War of the Worlds. Like we talk a lot about like these superhero movies having like all this like 9-11 imagery in it. But this was truly like the first like piece of genre of fiction to reach a wide audience that was like pulling on the like people covered in dust running away from destruction, the family unit being broken apart and like panic, and then the panic and paranoia of like everyone around you and people being rounded up and put into prisons essentially. It's like one of the most harrowing movies ever made by a director who's ever been saddled with the title of Peddler of Pablum I've ever seen in my entire life. It has some problems. I mean, the kid whose name I cannot remember for the life of me right now, not very good, the one who plays his son. Uh, I think it really does play with the Tom Cruise star persona and like also this vague idea that like maybe Tom Cruise wouldn't make the best father uh, being this like kind of like cocky golden boy who happened to have kids and, you know, divorced father. But the sequences of them like just trying to survive and running away from the tripods, I just love it. But like that family unit stuff that he keeps coming back to and the fact that Tom Cruise has to accept the responsibility of taking care of his kids, putting his life on the line to do so, even though he's not the best at handling that responsibility along with these stressful situations. And also just the propulsion to it, which, you know, I'm going to talk about in my introduction to West Side Story that I'll post later, but like Spielberg, just the way he uses a camera, can't talk about it enough. The propulsion of that movie and those sequences of them running away. Ugh. And then I would say from the 9-11 to post-9-11 era of science fiction films, there's kind of a long gap. Like we don't get another Spielberg sci-fi movie until we get to Ready Player One, which I have already said my piece on. Look. I think the book Ready Player One is garbage. Let me just be frank about it. It's not for me. Despite being a raging dork myself, I find nothing more annoying than someone just referencing things for the sake of referencing them. I think the concept of this, of a mixed universe of IP, we should have just left it at Who Framed Roger Rabbit because that's the best I feel like it's ever been done. I know that there's an idea that, you know, we can explore character pathos in the human condition and what it says about society, that we cling on to these IP with the intensity of religious zealots. And look, I do think that's interesting. And it's a very dystopian sci-fi concept. I love cyberpunk. It's a, it's a well-worn tradition to examine these things. But that book itself is not examining those things. That book itself is praising those things and it has to me especially uh, the last decade caused a lot of problems not that book itself but like this idea of like ip being the end all be all for culture i don't think it's great and also on top of that i think it's just a badly written book but as i was talking about a couple of weeks ago i think why steven spielberg is a genius is that while he can't fix that underlying problem and also i wouldn't call steven spielberg the most pointed director or pointed artist He's not really going to call you out. Like, honestly, the one thing that he really updates from the book, unless I just can't really remember the ending to the book, is that 
his ultimate solution to everything is just like, just go outside and touch some grass. That's all these kids need. They just need to go, just get off the computer every once in a while, go touch some grass. Um, which is pretty much what the ending to the Ready Player One movie is saying. But what I do enjoy about this movie, and what I haven't mentioned very much about any of these other sci-fi movies, is that he gets how thrilling spectacle can be if executed in the right way. Like, there's the entire race sequence. There's a whole, I'm not even going to get into like the Ready Player One mythos. Just know that the, the first challenge of the movie is that our protagonist has to win a race. Uh, he's got a DeLorean. My eyes are already rolling, but he's got a DeLorean. And it's this race that's really you know impossible to win by all accounts. But he figures out a secret to the race. But the sequence, the actual racing sequence is just like, it's just shredding. Because he's so good at propulsion. He's so good at movement. And he's so good at like forward momentum that like a racing sequence in a movie like this where he's like dodging King Kong and there's like all these recognizable vehicles on the road and like enemies and monsters. And like, it's not the level of, let's say, a speed racer, but it is as far as just things that are an assault on aesthetics. I would say it's a pretty good upper tier piece of filmmaking. Yes, there is like the idea of like found family within the movie with all these like Egg hunters, gunters is what they're called. <laughs> Finding each other, being of different backgrounds, race, sexes, all that. Even that's present within that movie. And so, I don't know, I find Steven Spielberg interesting is that while we look at science fiction, typically, especially now, as like kind of a dystopian thing, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out in 1977, which is kind of interesting because also so did Star Wars, uh, which is kind of came and changed what sci-fi would become for a long time. I tend to think we think of sci-fi as more of a dystopian genre than a utopian genre these days. And what I think I enjoy about Steven Spielberg is that while not all of his pictures could ever be called utopian in any way, especially when they deal with sci-fi, he does put that little kernel of hope and warmth in it that I really do think endears you to these stories in ways that if they were just like traditional O. Henry sci-fi stories, and not that O. Henry stories are like traditional sci-fi stories, but like, you know, sci-fi stories typically ask like, what if, and then try to take them to their logical conclusion. I do like that is woven into that as opposed to just dwelling on like the cold, hard logic of science fiction. There's like a very warm human element to it. And for that, I love him. So if you are around for that Close Encounters of the Third Kind screening, please join us. Like I said, it's $4. It'll be a good time. Uh, one of my favorites, make sure you eat a bunch of mashed potatoes before you come and see the movie. But my sick, sick self is going to wrap up this episode and turn it over to me introducing West Side Story so you can have some more thoughts on Steven Spielberg. But if you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at SamuraiFlix, on Instagram at Robert Dolphy, on Letterboxd at Robert Dolphy. At the time of this recording, uh, please stay tuned for some upcoming Cicada Cinema screenings, including a screening of Tammy and the T-Rex at the Orbit Room on March 17th, and Inspector Ike at the Blockhouse on March 26th, as well as my Staff Select Speed Racer screening, which is coming up quicker than I'd like to admit, uh, <laughs> which will be a very, very special evening for all those who can come out to it. I can promise you that much. So keep your eyes on those things. Keep your eyes on the IU Cinema social media, um, the IU Cinema blog. I really hope you have a great spring break this week if you're laying low. 
keep it chill. If you're traveling and partying and that, have a great time. But with that, uh, this has been A Place for Film. We'll see you at the movies. Good night. Hello, and welcome to the Indiana University Cinema. My name is David Carter. I'm the IU Cinema Podcast host, editor, producer, the IU Cinema blog contributor and co-founder, and the Cicada Cinema co-founder and co-operator. And I would like to welcome you to this very special screening of Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner's adaptation of Jerome Robbins, Arthur Lorenz, Leonard Bernstein, and of course, Steven Sondheim's 1957 landmark smash hit Broadway musical, West Side Story. Um, I'd like to thank the Indiana University Cinema staff and volunteers for letting me introduce the screening and Alicia and Brittany for coming through for a homie and adding West Side Story to the schedule because this to me is the definition of a holy cinematic experience. Um, and it shouldn't be surprising considering the man behind the camera is known for his mastery of cinematic language. And when I say language, I really do mean it. Steven Spielberg seems to be blessed with the ability to make dynamic movies the same way Paganini could play the fiddle. Uh, it's like second nature to him. Uh, but before I give Uncle Steve and Tony Kushner my unadulterated praises, I'm curious to know who has seen, listened to, been in any sort of stage version of West Side Story, the musical. Okay, who has seen the 1961 Robert Wise version starring Natalie Wood, Lita Moreno, and then uh, who is uh, the freaks who've only seen this in theaters back in like December, like this version in theaters in 2021? I knew, oh, okay, actually more than a few people. <laughs> so, well, for those, for the few of you who have never seen this at all, so who has not seen this at all? Any version of this? At all, no West Side Story ever. Okay, uh, well just for a small bit of context because I cannot get through the context of a stage musical in two movies, it's just too much. Uh, so the small bit of context is that this is adapted from William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which is a seminal text about fa rich families beefing and teens making dumb decisions, uh, horned up teens making dumb decisions. Uh, and while that play more focuses on the intense and sweeping romance of star-crossed lovers and the tragedy of both their respective families' squabbles, and I call them squabbles because Shakespeare couldn't even be bothered to mention any specific transgression that set all of this off besides them falling in love, uh, that lack of detail is what makes uh, this such interesting fodder for adaptation. Uh, cut to Jerome Robbins approaching Arthur Lorenz and Leonard Bernstein to adapt a play originally called East Side Story, as well as introducing them to a young Stephen Sondheim. Through collaboration, they decided to retool the story to focus on conflicts of Puerto Ricans and Irish, Polish, Italian Americans feuding over turf, which in 1957 was a big deal to depict in a musical. It was gritty for the time. Our protagonists and ancillary characters are unlikable at given points. It still had the bells and whistles of a musical, show-stopping numbers like Mambo in America, and I Want Song in the form of Tonight, and Jerome Robbins' stellar choreography, but it felt distinctly modern in its subject matter, and Leonard Bernstein's melting pot of a score, uh, while still feeling formal in its form, uh, you know, it's still a collection of different musical styles. Uh, and the Oscar and the 11-time Oscar-nominated and 10-time winning Oscar-winning film, uh, the adaptation co-directed by Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins, is the same. It's shot on sound stages and sets with very little location shooting in New York. It was mostly shot in LA. 
and it was par for the course for the movie musical at the time, but it had its modern flourishes uh, in that any musical made up until that point, it really does lean into like the ethereal dream logic of a musical. Musicals don't really make sense if you sit and break them down at any given point. Um, but it's so much more so that that it pretty much inspired David Lynch in his entire filmography, most specifically Twin Peaks. I mean, he cast Richard Boehmer and Russ Tamblin in important roles in that show and uh, movie. Uh, the film toes the same modern versus classical line in the fact that it's shot like a traditional musical of the time, but it's moving, this movements, the editing, and the super saturated color palette pointed towards something new on the horizon. But where it's backwards looking in its unfortunate casting of a bunch of non-Puerto Rican people as Puerto Ricans and the darkening of Rita Moreno's skin to make her read as more Puerto Rican on screen, uh, enter America's hardest working dad, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Steven Spielberg, uh, I mean, ever since uh, that Busby Berkeley uh, opening in the Temple of Doom, cinephiles and perverts everywhere have been chomping at the bit to have Steven Spielberg direct a musical. Even Steven Spielberg himself, uh, stating in 2004, said, I've always wanted to make a musical, not like Moulin Rouge, though an old-fashioned musical like West Side Story. Cut to 10 years later, he's hitting up his good friend Tony, Angels in America, Gay Fantasia on Themes, Kushner, uh, who had collaborated with Spielberg on Munich and Lincoln, uh, was skeptical on taking the project, even going back to his husband, uh, writer Mark Harrison, saying he's lost his mind when approached uh, by Spielberg to remake West Side Story. Uh, but when you look at how he's updated the text, um, it's even more explicit and pointed. I won't say too much, too much about the film, but the opening sequence of this movie establishes how meaningless this conflict is from the jump. They're essentially fighting, they're essentially fighting over turf that's been bought and sold by richer people uh, and more powerful people than they will ever be. Um, in addition to this modern parallel and interesting welcome choices are how the jets are colored. The original always had uh, sharks as the more sympathetic of the two gangs, but it dispels that both sides framework in favor of making the jets nearly a clear cut antagonist in this film. Uh, once again, you should just watch the opening sequence and there's a whole story unfolding there that's not unfolding in the original 1961 film. Um, there's also other things like the welcome update to the character Anybody's, who's more of a tomboy slash lesbian coded character who's desperate to be in cool with the Jets is now just an explicitly trans character. Uh, Tony Kushner saying that he thought about how trans uh, a trans person like any Anybody's would have presented in 1957. Um, and just to get back to the Spielberg of it all and the thing I wanted to highlight and why I think this is such a more much more dynamic musical than the original one, Steven Spielberg, as I said, is a technical genius. Uh, I, I mean, not to just be too on the nose to myself, but like I think he truly is probably like the John Coltrane of filmmaking. It's, it, his technicality with a camera is unmatched. He's invented whole cinematic language. He's the father of the modern blockbuster. Um, as Guillermo del Toro pointed out on a Twitter thread from a couple of days ago, uh, Spielberg's camera is extremely hard to execute. Pure masterly clockwork precision, if you attempted to really breaking down the tools and how he uses them, you have to do a second or third viewing. You feel like Salieri getting the Requiem dictation from Mozart in the film Amadeus saying, wait, 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 you're going too fast. So, if a master filmmaker like Guillermo del Toro can recognize this, I hope all of you can as well. And as far as what he's doing here, I mean, it's just virtuosity like down to its roots. Uh, almost every frame of the movie is incredible, from the crane shot that opens the movie 
uh, to the dance at the gym sequence, to the America sequence, to the absolutely enthralling reworking of the song Cool, which takes a great piece of pop extraction uh, filled with nerves from the 1961 movie and turns it into a dangerous dance between lovers. Um, and the grit in this is also dialed up. It's a dirtier movie than the original 1961 version. As someone pointed out, uh, these kids are dirty as hell. They have scabs on their arms. <laughs> um, and I would be remiss not to mention the great Stephen Sondheim, and I can't really belabor enough of that he is and was musical theater. Uh, he was never really a big fan of his work on West Side Story. Uh, he found it to be a little too clever, a little too formal, and a little too overwrought, but nevertheless understands its staying power and legacy. Besides Moreno, he was the last person alive you could call an absolute authority on the show. So all I'll say about Stephen Sondheim and how he felt about Spielberg's adaptation is this. Sondheim, upon seeing the finished film, wrote Sp uh, Spielberg a note that quite simply said, you done good, buddy boy. Um, so, and just a few other things to highlight before I wrap this up. The cast is incredible. The, pr the production crew is incredible. Justin Peck is the choreography on it, the choreographer on this, who had to rewrite like he did all original choreography, and that's kind of insane for a movie that's been parodied and referenced so many times, especially known for its choreography. Um, and in fun fact, com uh, director Gustav Dudamel, who serves as the conductor for this film. Uh, is a, it's amusing because his internet claim to fame, uh, which is a video which I highly recommend all of you watch right after this movie on YouTube, is uh, him conducting a youth orchestra as they play Mambo from West Side Story. It is quite possibly one of the most wholesomely thrilling videos you will ever see on the internet. Um, and yes, this movie was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Ariana DeBose's portrayal as Anita. Best Cinematography for Janusz Kaminski, who does some lovely work here. Best Costume Design, Best Sound, Best Production, sad, and best, uh, yes, Best Production Design, and sadly those last three won't be broadcast at this year's Oscars. Um, with bizarre snubs for Rachel Zegler, who plays Maria, and this is, this is introducing her, this is her first film role, and Mike Feist, who just crushes it as Riff. I think he's a great talent. I can't wait to see what else he does in the future. Um, and I can't wait to see them both in more things. So if you want to hear more discussion on West Side Story, uh, please check out the Ice on the podcast. I did an episode, and my former co-host Elizabeth did an episode with uh, Dr. Jay Hurst uh, on the 1961 Robert Wise, Jerome Robbins version, uh, which we go very deep on the musical theory of Leonard Bernstein's incredible score. And just as a small bit of advisory, there is a depiction of attempted sexual assault within the film. And as always, there's no food or drink in the, allowed in the Indiana University Cinema with the exception of bottled water. Mask are to be worn the entire time you're in the cinema unless you need to take a sip of the previously mentioned bottled water. And let's make it like 1957 in only one way because there's no balcony for me to sit in. Uh, <laughs> and, and please, everyone, turn off your cell phones. Smartwatch, please dim your smartwatches uh, so that eyes can stay on Uncle Steve and Janusz Kaminski's cameras and your ears can stay on Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim's music and lyrics. So without further ado, please enjoy The West Side Story. Thank you. <laughs> 